Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Chitheads. Today's episode is actually an episode from the new Tarka Journal podcast. Stephanie Crigliano, the editor-in-chief of Tarka, and myself uh, had a conversation with Marcy about her article from the journal, Is Academia Like a Religion? The conversation went in a lot of interesting directions as we explored the ideological conformity of some aspects of academia and what uh, intellectual or contemplative education might look like beyond its borders. So I hope you enjoy the episode, and if you do, we'd love it if you'd join us over at the Targa Journal podcast. If you search on any of your podcast apps, you can find the Targa Journal podcast published by Embodied Philosophy, and just subscribe on whatever your favorite podcast app is. So without any further ado, let's dive into the conversation. So edic means an outsider's perspective, someone who's looking at information, you know, objectively. And then emic is someone who is an insider who's practicing as a believer in the things that they're talking about. So there are different kinds of biases, although I think to some degree that people who are coming at things from an edic perspective are told that they're objective, which is a problem in and of itself, which is something that I get into in the article, because they are as committed to certain ideologies as the emic people are. They're just different kinds of commitments. We decided, me and my friend, who was like, she was very militant and I respected her for it. And we went to that speaker because we had heard he said this thing and we went to shout him down and we did it and I left feeling empowered. And now I look back and think of the immaturity of that and how childish it was. From the side of well-intended good Catholics, the, those those genuine beacons of light that, that do come through and try to teach, there's the idea that how can this institution change if everyone who's clearly seeing the problems of the institution just jump ship? We are here today with Marcy Braverman Goldstein. And we are very excited to be speaking with her because this is the first episode of the Targa Journal podcast of all four episodes. <laughs> so not many as of yet, but the first one where we're speaking to one of our colleagues. We work with Marcy quite closely on the Yoga Philosophy Certificate Program. She teaches a course for us with Ramesh Bionis on the roots and branches of yoga. And She's also a friend and we like her very much. And we're looking forward to talking to her about one of my favorite articles from the Scholar Practitioner issue, is, Academ is academia like, in parentheses, uh, li uh, like is in parentheses, a religion. So is academy like a religion or is academia a religion, depending on how you read the title. And uh, this article, as I said, comes from our first issue on the Scholar Practitioner, where we really, um, well, it, as you know by now, if you've been listening to the other episodes, Scholar Practitioner was the issue we published retroactively as a way to frame the whole project of Tarka and kind of our intentions uh, behind it and, and, and what we're trying to do with Tarka as a, as a, a journal platform. So welcome, Marcy. Thanks for joining Stephanie and I. Thank you so much for having me. This is just such an honor, really. 
So I had a question before we kind of move into your article. I thought maybe we could begin by just talking about what scholar practitioner means to you and, and how it has kind of informed your approach to your own, own research and teaching. Well, I think, as I've said recently to a few other colleagues, that embodied philosophy makes me feel like I can really bring my full self. I can bring my intellectual inquiry, but I don't have to check my heart and my body at the door, which is what I felt was expected of us as we were training to become academics. Mm. And I was never the kind of person who wanted to be in the library 100% of the time. I didn't want to forget that I had a body as I was looking around at a lot of professors, they just seemed to be mind, <laughs> all mind and not even like taking care of their bodies so much. There was also a little bit of an interesting sort of expectation where we were told you can study about these traditions, but don't start practicing them because then you might lose your mind. And while I bought into that a little bit, I never fully did. And I started a meditation practice. I started working as a trade at the Santa Barbara Yoga Center and became very involved in yoga, but didn't talk about it so much because I thought, Maybe my professors would think a little bit less of me if they knew about that side of me. Even though some other people were very open about it, I just felt like I needed to be a little closeted. And so I was like that for a while. And studying Sanskrit and learning all about the philosophies and loving it, loving the rigor, loving analyzing different traditions, learning all the history, and having this sort of side thing that I was doing going on in the background. And very proud of it, but it, like it wasn't integrated. And then towards the beginning of my academic career, I worked at a variety of different universities, first on the West Coast, and then I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. I've taught, taught for almost a decade at UNC Charlotte and enjoyed academia, but it was like, I didn't fully feel at home is really what it was. And that whole time, by the way, I was teaching in the, in the university classroom, but I also became a mom pretty early on into that. And so that was like a certain way that I was already hybridizing my career and felt very comfortable about that would never have done it another way like I wanted to be a very involved mom. And I didn't feel like academia would really support that very well, and so I was always you know had one foot in one world and another foot very much in another world and eventually started teaching very much outside academia. When I got sort of implicit permission to do so from some of my mentors who had started teaching in the yoga world. Mm. And I thought, I remember vividly thinking around 2010, well, if they can do that, then so can I. And I took my favorite cherished ideas that I love to think about in academia, and I started boiling them down to um, like bite-sized pieces where that, that non-academics, you know, just curious adults, seekers could understand and that I thought they were actually longing for, but didn't have a place to get that intellectual side because they weren't in academia. And so I met all these people who, who were thirsty for intellectual information and I was able to give it to them while I was sitting on the floor in a yoga studio yeah. and it felt right. And I kept teaching in academia, so I was kind of going back and forth and, you know, it, it definitely works. And then eventually embodied philosophy came along and I was like, okay. Yeah. 
this is it. You know, I can talk about an experience that I had as a way to know who I am and what the universe is like. I don't have to bracket that. And I've had a lot of people say, thank God you're bringing the intellectual rigor. Like, where was that? I didn't see it. And I love how you bring it. Thank you so much. And so people are like so thirsty for knowledge and so eager to be in the conversation. And yet that kind of conversation is a little bit hard to find because we have in a certain way, this like bifurcated spaces. It's either all mind in the university or the all good, it's all good, it's all body, heart in some spiritual communities. Yeah. And they're both lacking because of it. So we need this synergy, which is the word that I take from you because it just works so well, where they're mutually informing. And I think it helps bring balance. I know it brings balance to me. And I hope that I can model that for other people so that mm. they too can be balanced. They don't have to check one or the other at the door. Thank you for being with us today. And I, I appreciate your response. It resonates with so much of my own experience in academia and with practice. Um, in our yoga philosophy certificate program, you teach the history course, and there's this really interesting juxtaposition that you have in that course with um, your co-teacher, Ramesh, where you set up this etic and emic difference, where you both bring something of that to the table, where he, I think, identifies more with the um, emic side of things as the insider practitioner, and you bring the voice of the addict. So I was wondering just in within this question of the scholar practitioner, how you see yourself in relation to the yoga communities that you study and that you can hold that space for that outsider perspective. What, how do you, how do you balance those, um, the scholar practitioner combining them and then also um, kind of stepping outside to provide that uh, outside perspective? That's a great question. So to a certain degree, I think that I, if I had to kind of split the two perspectives, I kind of feel like I might be 70-ish percent etic and 30% emic, something like that. I mean, it kind of keeps shifting, but- Marcy, will you just d define those two terms uh, briefly for us, just so for the listeners who don't aren't familiar with those two terms? Yeah, so the, I, I think it's pronounced etic and emic, 99% sure. Um, so etic means an outsider's perspective, someone who's looking at information, you know, objectively. And then emic is someone who is an insider who's practicing and is a believer in the things that they're talking about. So they're different kinds of biases, really. Although I think to some degree that people who are coming at things from an etic perspective are told that they're objective, which is a problem in and of itself, which is something that I get into in the article because they are as committed to certain ideologies as the emic people are. They're just different kinds of commitments. Um, so Ramesh has a guru who he speaks about a lot in our class, and I love that. I at first thought maybe I'm lacking somehow as a teacher in the yoga community because I don't have a guru. I've studied with and participated in various different meditation immersions and all that. and you know, have some some history with certain gurus more than others, for sure. But I don't have a serious lineage. And so for a while, I did think that I was at a disadvantage. But then I realized, actually, you know, first of all, I have to be who I am. And I'm proud of who I am. I don't want to try to be somebody else, all those kind of teachings. Um, and then I realized that's actually my strength. 
because I can see things from a variety of perspectives, some of them from insider practitioner experiential ways of knowing, but not just a particular lineage. So it's not like I'm parroting a particular guru. I'm taking a little bit from this person, a little bit of that from that person. It's like a little bit of a buffet from a variety of insiders who know things because of their heartfelt embodied experiences, but also completely valuing the intellectual side of me that is what got me here to begin with although i think that when i was very young and i didn't really get what was going on i think it was this very much like a an inner quest i just didn't really know it at the time because like why did i get into all this it was some kind of deep curiosity and longing as a seeker that i think i didn't really have a label for which is why i meandered from being a psychology major to a religion major in college because it was that quest it just didn't kind of appear to me like that until many years later. Well, yeah, I wanted to kind of touch briefly on a few of the points that you mentioned before, because, you know, just like Stephanie, I resonated with so much of what you said. It's, you know, it's a very, for the, for many of us, it's kind of a familiar story. It's, we, we have sort of our own journey through that, that, um, and that sense of, longing for something that we think will be fulfilled by academia and then realizing that it can't be <laughs> because ultimately, and maybe I'm just speaking from my own journey because this is the way I recognized it, but I saw myself ultimately as seeking some sort of spiritual fulfillment. And um, and and so insofar as I was engaged in kind of intellectual activity, I wanted it to be applicable to some sort of, you know, meaningful path uh, of uh, of whatever you, you know, substitute for kind of uh, a sense of li- life being fulfilled in some way. And, you know, when you were talking about academics sort of not taking care of the body, and uh, I it resonated with something that I've often kind of said about when I was in philosophy departments, well, it's a bit different, a bit of a, a twist on what you said, but but I would often say that, you know, someone could be studying philosophy, could be at the height of their game academically, could be, you know, publishing in a really impressive way and and be highly respected. You know, that person could very easily also be the type of person that goes home and beats up their partner. You know, there's nothing kind of in the in the practice of engaging with the philosophy in the Western academic sense that is in any way applied to how you live your life. It's a completely um, separated thing. And and to me, because I think I went into philosophy thinking that, you know, the top of the philosophy ladder was some sort of enlightenment state, although at the time I didn't acknowledge that, you know, that I, that was where, that was the kind of cutoff point for me was, was, was not, um, was not being able to find whatever it is that I was looking for and um, and needing this kind of, as you said, synergy between knowledge and experience to at least move in the right direction. Maybe I haven't found it yet, but, <laughs> but at least move in the right direction. Well, this idea of the etic as the outsider, the objective scholar who's studying the tradition, who doesn't necessarily identify with the tradition from what you've said, it sounds a bit like etic redefined. <laughs> and I think you talk about this in the article also, but this idea of um, like redefining objectivity in relation to material and, and kind of giving space to 
the seeker or to those open questions, really it's that burning drive for knowledge that really propels many students into the field of philosophy or religious studies. And it's so interesting that sometimes um, we're called to separate out or not make those, in some ways you need that burning question if you're going to create a dissertation, if you're going to do graduate school at all, it's kind of, you know, what is your question? What is your thesis going to be about? What are you writing? You know, what are you gonna research? But then kind of holding a space for, for um, putting your whole self into that is so interesting to me. Um, I resonate with it because especially in reflecting upon the yoga community at large, there's so much, um, there's so much kind of ambiguity between who becomes kind of identified with a particular lineage or a teacher or a set tradition and those that are spiritual, but not religious, those that are just continuing to seek as a lifelong path, searching for different, com different components of knowledge. And that that path of the seeker is its own path is a lot of what you're writing about. You're reflecting on academia specifically, but really also valuing that path of the seeker. Um, and I think um, for me personally, just kind of going into these you know, reflections, I feel like that's a lot of what I have hoped to bring to the table with something like what we're doing with the yoga philosophy certificate program and, and just the general project of you know, the Tarka journal and the different work that we do with embodied philosophy is this idea that this path of the seeker is not less than having, you know, feeling comfortable defining yourself as just one thing. <laughs> and historically, you know, when we look at where religious, where, you know, where did yoga come from? We end up back in this cradle of ancient India talking about the Shramana movement, which were the wandering mendicants, which, you know, kind of gave birth to Hinduism and Buddhism and Jainism. It's like you come back to this cross-pollination milieu of seekers that were studying and seeking and trying to understand. And yet in many ways, we're kind of replicating that um, today in our own modern, very different ways. I thought, uh, I don't know if we, we might want to transition to talking about the article itself. I thought also just maybe offering you a space to say something about, because I know one of your particular expertise areas is Sanskrit and that um, the Sanskrit and the study of Sanskrit is itself a practice. And, you know, that it's like, we think of yoga or asana or meditation as these kind of practices. And, you know, Jacob is also involved in this, but I thought maybe I was curious to just, if you wanted to add anything about that as part of your path. Sure. Yeah. I think one of my intellectual embodied sort of awakenings was the study of Sanskrit. Actually, I've always loved languages. And when I discovered Sanskrit and the intricacy of the grammar, it just lit me up from the inside in a very sort of inexplicable way. And I remember thinking at the time that it intrigued me, or probably lit up the same part of my brain that enjoyed geometry and algebra in high school, because there's something about a squared plus b squared equals c squared. And I just love putting it all together. And Sanskrit grammar is just like that. And it's, I've studied a lot of languages and not them all obviously, but it is so intricate. And it's like, it's like the building blocks of the universe just sort of come together in the grammar. And I think you have to actually do it in order to know it. And it's a huge undertaking, and it's at least a part-time job to really get at it. And I try to give people little bird's-eye view into it without overwhelming them, because most people are not going to commit to it. But you have to try it at least to know it. And I think it's respectful to tradition to be able to know a little bit about the Sanskrit 
It also um, helps knit people together because it's an Indo-European language, just like English. So it's not as foreign as people think. And it's one of those three ancient languages that are the, the, the basis of all the Indo-European languages, along with Greek and Latin. That usually blows people's minds. And so it's, you know, it just gets into interesting sort of politicking, actually, because when you look up the roots of words and dictionaries, which I realize that not everybody does, but I do, and we usually see Greek and Latin roots but they could also be Sanskrit roots. They're just not included in the dictionary for whatever complicated set of reasons exist, including the fact that whoever wrote the dictionary doesn't know Sanskrit, but there's also politicking involved. And so I just kind of bring that to the fore and just kind of like leave it for people. Um, but the study of Sanskrit is something that I think everybody should try, not because they have to use Sanskrit in their classes. I think that it should just be like a tool in people's toolbox that they can answer people's questions when, when they come up and also just to be informed, but you don't want to scare people out the door with multisyllabic foreign words. So there's times not to use Sanskrit, but it is a practice. It definitely is. And it involves a lot of blood, sweat and tears. So it is a very embodied sort of practice. I mean, some of the most fun moments I had in grad school were, were sitting with myself or a group of people trying to just translate a sentence. And if you didn't memorize your Sunday rules, which are euphonic rules, which tell you how to tease words apart and put them together, then you're going to be looking up a word in the dictionary that doesn't exist because it's not actually a word. It's a compound that blended in a certain way. And until you have that aha moment, you're just going to be sitting there basically forever. And um, so you have to just really be very committed. And it is a practice and it is a really beautiful language that is distinctive, I think, because of the connection between sound, feeling and meaning. And so words have to blend together in beautiful ways so that you're pronouncing them well, because when you say something well, it's vibrationally mellifluous. And then you're creating beauty and you're becoming beauty. You're manifesting beauty. And you mm -hmm. can learn all that from Sanskrit, which I don't think is offered as much in the other Indo-European languages. That's really beautiful. And uh, I feel like we could have a whole conversation about Sanskrit and I definitely do want to at some point, but for the sake of time, let's um, talk about your article. Is academia like a religion? I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm curious as to why this article? I mean, we've been speaking about the stakes behind it, I think, a little bit and, and sort of the, the um, you know, the experiences that would motivate an article like this. What kind of inspired you to write this particular article? Like, what do you feel like the issues are that you wanted to respond to? I also would just add that I, um, I recall you being nervous in the editing process of releasing yeah. this. So looking, you know, curious about your inspiration, but also you know, what did you feel the stakes were? So I think the first thing that inspired me to write it, it was first, first of all, it's coming from a very deep place in my mind and my heart, like a very deep concern that I have for the world that we live in. I think what initially inspired me is that I ultimately started feeling betrayed by academia. And it was a really bad betrayal because it promised a universe of information and that people could come to the table with their various viewpoints and we could all discuss in civilized manners and that everybody would have a place at the table and what i eventually noticed starting at least a decade ago is that not everybody is welcomed and that while there is a lot of intersectionality and a lot of welcoming of diversity there's not as much viewpoint diversity. There's diversity mm -hmm. with respect to identity, but there's ideological conformity. 
You're allowed to say certain things. You're not allowed to say other things. If you say certain things, you will not get hired. You will not get tenure. You'll become like an outcast. And so that is ultimately why I was a little bit afraid to write this article, because I thought, do I step out with my critique of academia, which goes against the dominant narrative that we, whoever the we are, are the open-minded, tolerant people of the world who are seeking you know, justice and freedom for all. And I don't see that happening on the ground. And when I say on the ground, I actually am tapping into something that I learned as a scholar of religion, which is that there's theories of religion and then there's religion on the ground. Like, how is it actually practiced? And I see a very serious disjoint between how we imagine the practice of academia and how it actually shows up on the ground, which authors are welcomed into syllabi, which are completely verboten, which thinkers are invited as guest lecturers to campus, and which are canceled from campus. Their speeches will not be included. Sometimes there's even a mob of students arguing against having a speaker on campus and frequently the administration caves to the mob and then the students don't get to hear that alternate point of view. So they can't even argue against it in a completely informed manner because they haven't fully heard it. I'm all for opening up a world of information, reading every point of view. I mean, the, of course, this brings up the question of who or what should be excluded. Like, is there a line to draw on the sand of a viewpoint that we do not include because it is so immoral? It's a great question, and it's really hard to know where to draw that line. But I think that there's a way to limited or exclusive group of people being welcomed in academia right now. And I got a little bit of external justification for that. In recent years, there is an article that I mentioned in my article called A Letter on Justice and Open Debate, which was published probably around three or four years ago by a bunch of leading classic liberals, including uh, Cornel West was mentioned in there, Gloria Steinem, Steven Pinker, Salman Rushdie, who are like, hold up, we have major ideological conformity happening not just in academia, but in the world of the arts, and we're really concerned because it's an authoritarianism that's creeping in and it's very dangerous coming from the left as it can come from the right as well. But I think it's a little, people have like a bit of a blind spot when it comes from the left because we are supposed to be the ones who welcome all points of view, but it is not happening nearly as much as it should. And I have many, 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 many very specific examples, some of which made it into this article, which I reviewed in preparation for our conversation today. And so I realized, you know, I wrote this at the very end of 2020, and so much has happened since then. And there are so many more examples of things that have happened and also developments to resolve this problem that a lot of people see, um, but a lot of people are afraid to speak about it because they'll be outcast. Mm -hmm. I've decided it's important enough to me to speak about, and I also am in good company with a few of the names that I already mentioned and plenty of other people. And there's other solutions to this problem that have developed since I wrote the article. Such a great point in terms of divisiveness and having this like closed community of debate that doesn't actually hear, fully hear the other side. And I feel like that's increasingly becoming something that 
I'm aware of in my own work. And when I, you know, kind of look towards the younger generation, I see a fatigue with that sort of polarization and maybe a not knowing, you know, like just frustrated that, you know, maybe the adults can't get it together to hear both sides or else there, or else there's a, you know, there's always the parroting of kind of what, whatever the adults say, but um, you know, there's Is like- it the adults though? Cause I feel like more often than not, it's the, the young generation that is sort of polar, polar. I mean, and I'm just saying that because I can literally remember myself being an example of this. I mean, I went to Ithaca college and I was, I was, it was a very leftist school. And I can remember sitting in the audience um, of a Republican speaker who just wasn't allowed to speak because he was Republican. This is a very leftist school. And, um, and we had, we had latched on to some thing that was a rumor about what he said. I had heard it third, you know, third in line, right? Uh, or not third, what, what's the word? Like tw- three times removed from the actual, what he said, you know, it's like a game of telephone. And we decided, me and my friend who was like, she was very, she was very militant and I respected her for it. And we went to that, to that speaker and because we had heard he said this thing and we went to shout him down and we did it and I left feeling empowered. And, and now I look back and think of, of the immaturity of that and how childish it was. But, you know, I, I, I feel like, uh, I don't know, like, I guess, is that really where it's coming from? Because it seems like more often than not, we hear stories about, about, you know, young people in academia being sort of shaped by this conformist ideology and then activating it in these various ways, like, you know, whether whether, whether it comes to speakers who come to universities or, or stuff like that. So I think to some degree, if that's the milieu in which people are waking up intellectually, they are in a silo out of which they cannot see. And I'm quoting from somebody with that little phrase, they don't realize that they're not looking at a universe of perspectives. And there is a tribalism and like social pressure to go along with what everybody else seems to be going along with. And so it is empowering to shout down somebody who's, you know, the other, but it's not intellectually sound because you're not actually engaging with them to begin with you might not agree with that speaker who's republican that is so fine is no problem at all but until you actually fully read his or her book and you know what that person is saying and you um critique it in an informed manner you have no idea what you're actually talking about and there's no not i shouldn't say no because i'm not on every university campus obviously but I don't think there's an encouragement to fully hear people out. There's, mm. there's just not. Turns out he didn't say what we thought he said, by the way. <laughs> I'm very worried about binary thinking because the world shows up in every shade of gray. And we have to be able to look at the nuances. And to me, it becomes all about Viveka, which is this Sanskrit word that means discernment, that you have to fully engage in order to persuasively shoot someone down. And if you haven't read the book, then you don't know all the nuances. And it's much easier psychologically just to retreat into right and wrong. And you might agree with somebody 20% and then throw out the 80% and that's okay. But it's a very difficult place to be because then you don't really know where you belong. Mm. And it's also very stressful to be in the middle because you have to assert your power of discernment, which is exhausting and time consuming because you have to become informed. 
And also, some people have a stronger power of discernment than others. You know, there's multiple intelligences, and some people are emotionally intelligent, musically intelligent, athletically intelligent, and all these things. And maybe someone is not as strong in, in the area of analytical thinking. And so then it's going to be very hard for those people to think their way through to truth. And so it's easy to go along with your friends and your beloved mentors. Mm -hmm. But then you're not owning your knowledge. You're just kind of like on somebody else's ride. Mm -hmm. And that concerns me you yeah. know, for myself, but also impressionable young people. Just turning towards your article here, you asked, you know, the title of your article is this question, is academia like a religion? And I just want to, for those that maybe have read or haven't yet fully dove into the article fully, you begin by defining religion. You offer a number of different definitions for um, religion by prominent theologians and philosophers. And you turn, um, then you kind of organize the lecture, or I'm sorry, the, um, the article by um, looking at Ninian Smarts, uh, one of the founders of the field of religious studies, um, and these categories that he sets up for how religion is defined. So I'll just briefly list these categories. There's ritual and practice, ethical and legal, mythic and narrative, doctrinal and philosophical, social and institutional, experiential and emotional, and material. And then you go on to talk about each one of these categories with some reflection about the academy and critiques. And so it's a, I think it's really well organized and engaging because many people who begin the study of religious study be, begin delving in deeper into the field of religious studies will have encountered this particular thinker and this, this way of categorizing and understanding religious studies. Um, I was particularly interested in the category of mythic and narrative, and maybe you have your own category that you'd like to say something more about, but I just was wondering, um, you know, mythic and narrative, the short excerpt that you have here says sacred stories and histories revealed and authored, written and oral, true literally or symbolically, such as cos cosmologies. Um, hagiographies, tales of God, people, saints, and demons. And so often this idea of what's myth and is myth false? And therefore, you know, and where do you get the value from? Is myth only have its value in the fact that it's not historical or it's not, you know, factual? Um, I'm, I'm just curious. I'm really curious if there's something academia is a calling of mythic proportions you begin. And I just wonder if you'd want to say a little something more about your approach to understanding the academy or like from this perspective. So I understand myth as true stories, either literally or symbolically. So some people are going to take the stories as literally true. Moses climbed the mountain. He parted the waters. Jesus walked the land, all that stuff, um, and that's fine. But they also tell deeper truths about liberative impulses that we have, feeling lost and behind boundaries and there's no way out and then suddenly the waters part and there's a passageway through to freedom, which is basically the birthing canal. And so whether or not the seas were actually parted to me doesn't matter because these stories are telling truths about human existence and our longing for freedom. 
And so I bracket whether they're literally true or not. It does not matter at all because we all have this quest, some more acknowledged than others, for belonging, knowing the difference between good and evil, where we're going, is life eternal, like all these things. So, so you know, I think about it that way. And then academia is a calling of mythic proportion. So for me, when I decided to go into academia, I remember where I was. And it felt like I had arrived in some way, like I am going to go into this font of knowledge and I'm going to get to dwell there and learn everything in the universe and then teach it to other people. And I have my calling. I thought I was going to be a psychologist for a while, but then I shifted, <laughs> you know, and I just thought this is it. And I'm going to teach people world religions, specifically Indian traditions, and I'm going to teach people about traditions other than their own so we can understand other people. We don't rely on snippets that we get in the media. I'm going to help heal the world <laughs> from the ground up. And off I went. And it was a very visceral sort of experience. And actually part of it happened during a sitar concert. And I heard the vibration of that instrument, which I had not known previously. And I just thought, this is where I belong. I don't know what it is, but this is it. And it was very deep and profound, connected to past lives, if there are any. <laughs> but this is my future. And off I went. And it was amazing. I remember sometimes feeling like just almost bursting at the seams with excitement about what I was studying. Like it was weird. And I loved it. And I still do love it. But then the disillusionment came at some point when I realized it's not all it's cracked up to be. And wow, are there major, major, major cracks in the foundation. The cracks are so significant socially, economically, sexually, like everything is wrong in a way. The system is set up like a stack of cards and it's just falling down because the foundation is not what it says it is. So you've got this ivory tower and the profane world outside, but meanwhile, there's a ton of profanity woven in to this entire system with its hierarchies, the adjunct professors who have absolutely no job security, whose job can be taken away in an instant, and yet we purport to care about all the victims of the world. Meanwhile, professors are abusing the women and some of the men. It's just absurd and it's systemic. And everybody knows it, it's an open secret. And there are beautiful things that happen in academia and I hope minds and hearts are opening every day, but it's rotten somewhere in the middle. And the reason it bothers me so much is because academia, unlike other institutions, like I'm not picking on banking or whatever, but nobody expects people to have mind-opening, heart-opening experiences in the corporate world as much. But in academia, this is where people come for liberation. It's a liberal arts education. The university, if we look at it historically, was um, was was built around the idea of the humanities and, and developing the human. I mean, it was a it was a you know it's a form of obviously culturally specific socialization that's specific to the West, but, and, and you could critique that and, and say, well, you know, the emphasis on Greek and Latin as, you know, the foundation of culture is, is problematic. But, but I think the the spirit of the idea is, is sound in the sense that, you know, academia and the universities are, are not 
intended to be, or at least in this, you know, in this original ideal uh, situation, uh, it wasn't meant to be just like a trade school for capitalist success. It was meant to shape you as a human to be both an informed citizen and also just grounded in, I guess, a, a shared cultural ground that would allow you to relate to other people. And I was actually speaking about this yesterday with Gavin Flood about how this original idea of the foundation of, of the classics and the humanities was essentially doing that. And, and you could make an argument for the increasing divisiveness actually being contingent upon this, this lack of a foundation, the lack of a shared sort of sense of the humanities. And of course, we could completely redefine what that even means to include, you know, non-Western cultures. I think it's, you know, it's open to that flexibility. Um, but we're so far away from that now in our own hyper-individuated specializations that are highly technical, that, there, that, that this could be part of this whole educational structure could be contributing to the, the sort of increasing sense that that person is completely alien to me and I have nothing in common with them. I don't even understand what, where they're coming from because we've been, we've, we've lost a shared social ground in a sense. Yeah, I completely agree, which is why in the article, I suggest that scholars are practitioners. While there is more or less understanding about this among each person who's a part of the system, there is still the corporate space in which the entire thing is happening, which is very different from what shows up in the classroom, by the way. Like there was this article that someone just posted recently from Teen Vogue actually saying that the university is a right-wing institution, something like that. And I just thought it was very a very weak analysis of what was going on in the university because while it is corporate and hierarchical and being overrun by administration in a certain way, that's different than what's happening in the classrooms as far as like, what students are learning and what points of view are are being um, exposed to them. And there is, unfortunately, I think, a lot of othering. And in the sense that like what like what you said, we're supposed to be there to try to understand other people, not to agree about everything in the world, because that's a ridiculous sort of goal. Everyone's going to disagree. That's fine. But to not other someone to such a degree that you cannot relate to them as a human, that you demonize them. And it came to a head for me in a, with a professor who I was listening to at one point about a year and a half ago, maybe. And he actually said that Republicans are demons, just categorically. And he used the Sanskrit word. It was, you know, there's many different categories of demons in Sanskrit. And he, he used one of those. And I just thought, really? Is that what you're modeling? It just seems it's happening. Be I mean, both sides. I mean, literally. I mean, you know, the on the other side, you know, liberals are are pedophiles, and uh, Republicans are demons. <laughs> so we've got ourselves into a really great uh, situation. Well, it's just ridiculous, and the name calling is so weak. I mean, disagree with someone, but don't attack their character. Like, aren't we supposed to avoid the ad hominem attacks? Tear down their argument as much as you want. Do not agree with them, but do it intellectually and stop the name calling and the othering. Aren't we better than that? That's not a spiritual calling. Like, we're not supposed to be that way. We're supposed to see the humanity in other people 
and not invite everyone to the dinner party because you don't want to talk to everybody necessarily, but at least understand what they stand for um, and don't diminish them to an insulting name, especially before you've heard each one out as an individual. That, that's one of the problems actually, is that we're into this like collectivism. All those people who look a certain way or who believe a certain, signed up for some religion or political party or whatever it is, they all must be that way. No, there's nuance there. And we have to have the, the viveka, the discernment to speak to people as individuals and then know whether we agree or disagree with their conclusions. And disagreement is, is healthy and it should be there. Mm. It's it's interesting the the parallel that you set up here between um, academia and the religious quest and how that shows up in this just in this particular it's actually a fairly small section of the article about the mythic and the narrative and how you talk about your own you know entry into academia and, and I think for many people it comes um, often at a young age not always but often it's this kind of uh, you know, young, young perspective, getting to know the world. And that's part of, and Jacob also talked about this, like kind of the vision of the university, this forming of the whole person who's capable of wrestling with these difficult questions. And there's like a certain promise there. So somehow almost the, the shortcomings of that setting, much like when you see a, a you know, religious leader or a famous guru that falls you know, or that you, you know, when you think of the different um, various um, exploitations of that have happened within religious institutions where some of the clergy or leaders have been found to be doing horrible things. And these horrible things are horrible everywhere and in all circumstances. And yet they spark a particular um, like unique level of pain and awareness when they rise up in these particular circumstances, like a place where somebody goes for spiritual and religious refuge, or like where you are forming, um, you are forming adults and young people in the way that they think. And, you know, in, in, and maybe in the university setting, it's all, and in academia, the transgressions are almost more subtle, because you have your kind of title nine, you have your, you know, sexual harassment and, and, trainings that are in place. So you do have like recourse to maybe report gross errors, but the, the training that I, you know, that the conversation that you and Jacob have just kind of been having is really more about these subtle transgressions and the way that that kind of hearts and minds are shaped is it's like something that you can't, you don't fully have recourse to report somewhere. And yet it acts on, um, it acts on your consciousness and maybe your well-being. I guess the the contemporary word for it in social activism is kind of the microaggressions, um, and maybe this is another form of it. It is you know shaping this shaping people that are prone to bias. Actually, <laughs> I think the reason it's not reported a lot is because a lot of the professors are condoning it. They're perfectly happy about it because they agree with that is they're morally in the right, you know, is what they think. And so they don't mind that not all the voices are included, I think. So who would you report to? There is no place to report that because 
the system is that. And with respect to the Title IX stuff, I mean, yeah, you can report that stuff, but the professor's not necessarily getting fired. There's an example of that in my article. Yeah, it was proven, Title IX violation, okay. You can still teach, okay? What is that? I mean, me too PhD is a hashtag for a reason. So we care about the abused students or professors, but we don't. It's just the hypocrisy is so crazy. You know, no one in banking purports to care for the victimized people of the world. They're explicitly hierarchical and capitalist. Okay. But academia to some degree purports to be other than that. And yet all the professors are, you know, they're grandstanding about that, but part of the system because they want to get tenure or keep their tenure or, you know, whatever the situation is, or everyone's scared to speak up or that's just the way it is. I'm just a person. How can I fight the system? And the system is like that because of its administration, the behind the scenes, the foundation, but also each of the little individual people who show up day to day, who make it stay that way because they want job security. So then I, I just jump in with kind of a, a uh, maybe an attempted in about face <laughs> thinking about this because here we have, you know, problems like, and so for so many people, I think of the, I have countless students that have grown up in Catholic churches. It's probably because I've went to two, my, both of my graduate school trainings were in Catholic institutions. Um, and I have a great love for Jesuit education. I, you know, that's my own bias. I really am grateful. Um, to that school of, of thinking and teaching. And, and yet I have seen so many that, um, so many say young Catholics that just cannot continue being Catholic because of everything that's gone on in the Catholic church. Um, and so it's this impulse to jump ship. It's too flawed. And then from the, from the side of, uh, we might, we might try to say, you know, well-intended good Catholics, that those, those genuine beacons of, you know, of light that, that do come through and try to teach. There's the idea that how can this institution change if everyone who's clearly seeing the problems of the institution just jump ship, because it's not going to only, it, it will, it will succumb in some ways to the external criticism, but you also need people that see the light or the potential within those institutions working for some kind of institutional change or um, you know, some sort of uplifting of that. So I wonder, um, just as, you know, kind of turning now more towards your conclusion in the latter part of your article, you know, what, what do you think is the hope or the promise of academia? Is there, is there a reason to stay within academia to change from within, or is it actually needing that jump ship out external critique? Has that step even happened yet? Um, you know, do we need enough people to jump ship? Are we there yet where there's enough... <laughs> Where you Jump can... ship into embodied philosophies ship. <laughs> yeah, really. Forget about the uh, legacy institutions, as they're sometimes called. We need University 2.0, and embodied philosophy, I think, is definitely one very important expression of it. And I hope that it continues to grow and become, um, you know, just known in every corner of the world, and especially because it's not brick and mortar, it has a lot of potential. 
I'll be adding that to the promotional copy. Yes. And I mean that from, from my heart. So I don't think everybody should jump ship. Of course, you can't, no system is perfect. There is no place you can go and find a perfect system because humans are involved. And so you have to try to fix things, I think, by keeping, you know, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You need to have people who are informed about the system in order to fix the system. Maybe some people want to start building from the ground up. That's fine. There's actually a new university being founded. It's called University of Austin. And it is not part of the state system. It's a completely new thing. And they actually say on their homepage, we're building a university dedicated to the fearless pursuit of truth. We're done waiting for the legacy universities to write themselves. And so we are building anew. Very interesting. So I think that's worth checking out. They're having some summer courses called Forbidden Courses. So you can go check those out and see like, what are they including that they think is not being included in the traditional universities. But, you know, most of the people who are starting that university, which might be one expression of a new rebuilding, are academics and administrators in academia. One of the people working there is Larry Sumners, I think is his name from Harvard University, who was, I think, ousted because he said something that was not politically correct about seven or eight years ago. So that was the end of him there. And so people are bringing what they know and love about academia and they're giving it a new twist. And this might be something to really pay attention to. Maybe there'll be other universities growing that do something new-ish from the ground up in a new physical space. And maybe as more and more people are kind of speaking the unspeakable about the imperfections that are open secrets, maybe things will shift and become better for us all within some of the legacy universities because the finances will become different somehow and then university will be available to more people and the The, the seminar table will grow and hopefully include more viewpoint diversity, which I think is healthy so that can, people can refine their understanding of different points of view and then even know what they think better because they've successfully argued it against another. That's really beautiful. I'm, and I'm so glad you brought up um, the University of Austin. And I also kind of wanted to add another um, project that's sort of, I guess, in the family of this uh, I guess, attempt to move forward, but in a slightly different way. And it's called the Galileo Commission. And uh, my friend Athena is actually a part of it. And, and it's it's not a new institution, but it is a kind of, they've created, well, they they threw out the word manifesto and now it is a, I don't, I don't know what exactly what they're calling it, but a something for a new humanities. And and the the their kind of, you know, what was previously called a manifesto and is now called something I can't remember <laughs> is uh, is basically talking about the way in which the spiritual aspect of humanity or what we would call you know the practice side of the scholar practitioner has been sort of 
has been removed from the study of the humanities. And so their whole, their whole kind of argument, and it's, a, it's basically a, a document that many, many scholars and, and scientists and researchers have, are signing um, for a kind of renewed um, exploration and inclusion of the notion of spirit into the humanities, which we might even say is just a notion of what it means to be human. You know, you could, it doesn't have to be a sort of religious uh, sense. And this is, you know, I, I feel like a kind of another angle of what you're saying in terms of, you know, the the unfettered pursuit of truth in the sense that we might maybe, maybe one could argue that, that one of the reasons why the academy has drifted into an ideological conformity and maybe why ideological conformity happens in general is because it's a substitute for spirit. It motivates the spirit to be in alignment with some sort of ideological um, focus because it motivates you, it inspires you, you know, and 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 so there's a there's a kind of uh, channeling of one's energy that one feels when they are taken up by a very you know you know righteous cause, and yet it leads into these you know rigid directions, and so perhaps perhaps it is a lack of the spirit that's leading us adrift in these ways. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that the ideological conformity and all the other six dimensions of religion, because I put ideological conformity mostly under the doctrinal dimension, I would say that's why academia functions as a religion, because there's a vacuum into which this enters for people who don't belong to a church or a synagogue or a mosque. This is their religion. It functions as their religion, socially, emotionally, mythically, experientially, it's all there. But I would also add that I very carefully in the article did not answer my own question. Is academia like a religion? I kind of suggest yes, and I kind of suggest no, because there's pros and cons to landing in either camp. And I just want people to be able to answer the question for themselves. And I don't want to put my ideological understandings on other people. So it is an open-ended question. People should come to their own conclusions. And so interestingly, I'm kind of now realizing that the article is like truly an expression of how I teach. I very explicitly say to people, I do not want to accidentally indoctrinate you. That would be the worst thing. I'm not pushing my agenda on you. I'm going to give you as much information as I can think of. And you need to come to your own conclusions. And that's... I think what the article does in a very sort of microcosmic way in that I asked this question and towards the end, it, it's not fully answered because it doesn't really matter what the answer is. It's just that it's raising these really important questions that hopefully people can think about and truly come to their own conclusions and their own conclusions might be different as it should be, but we shouldn't demonize each other except for the people who are not welcome to the table. I mean, who is that? I usually draw the line before genocidal maniacs. Like, they're not welcome to the table. If you're trying to wipe out a whole group of people, like, we're not talking. Marcy, thank you so, well so much for, yeah, very well said. And thank you so much for joining us today for this conversation about the article, Is Academia Like a Religion? Um, this is, it's just been really a wonderful treat to have this 
chance to talk with you and hear a little bit more behind the scenes about this um, article. Well, thank you so much. I've cherished our time together and it's just been perfect because I love talking to you as well. <laughs>